and welcome to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 22. This week, Brian and I are discussing the archaeological evidence that proves the historical value of the Gospel of John. As we highlighted in episode 18 about the Gospels, the book of John is different than the Synoptic Gospels, which has led some to believe that some of the stories in John are non-historical, that it's all symbolism. However, recent discoveries are pushing against that narrative, and that's what we talk about in this episode. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the podcast, would you mind leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or a review on Facebook? If that's not your thing, would you mind sharing the post about this episode or another episode you've enjoyed on Facebook? Or, you know, just tell your friends. We'd love to expand our audience. All right, let's jump into this episode looking at the archaeology proving the historical value of the Gospel of John. Does my voice sound okay? Voice. Your voice sounds great, Brian. Great. It's like it's like uh, butter. 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 <laughs> well, Brian, welcome back to the Bistro. Hey, it's always good to be in the Bistro. I like yes. the Bistro. Yeah. I. You know what? I like the Bistro too. It's kind of a special place. Yeah, it is a special place. I'd be a little concerned if you didn't like the Bistro <laughs> since we're spending fair, so much time in fair it. Fair point. We are. <laughs> yes. So what do you want to talk about today? Archaeology is one of our topics that we're kind of interested in and kind of recent discoveries. We, you know, we talked about relatively recent discoveries that have to do with the Bible in, a, in kind of general sense. And I said then I was going to save some just for the Gospel of John. Yeah. Because, you know, the Gospel of John is something I spend some time on. And- well, I figured this out. Yes. <laughs> I slowly understood that you know a couple things about it. Now, here's the, here's the fascinating thing to me about it. There's been several relatively recent discoveries. I'm going to go back a little bit farther, but there's some that are, you know, within the past uh, 20 years at least, but I'm going to go back a little bit farther with the Gospel of John. But the interesting thing t- to me about that is there have been some some discoveries archaeologically that have completely changed our understanding of the Gospel of John in, in some significant ways. Mm-hmm. And I thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about that. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, the first thing I wanted to just mention, though, is this might come as a surprise to some some people who are listening, but for a long time, the Gospel of John was not considered to be very historical at all. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's obviously some some historical parts to it, but there were a lot of people who who did. And I, I tell you, it goes all the way back. There were some statements by some of the early church fathers, one particular by a guy named by the name of Clement of Alexandria. And what he said is he said after the other gospel writers had written, John wrote last of all, and he wrote a spiritual gospel. And and that that phrase or that word spiritual gospel has caused people to kind of, I think, look at the gospel of John as not really being interested in history or, or what actually happened, but being more about symbol and and metaphor and and images. In other words, they they've taken to mean he was writing theologically. So so it was all symbolism, right? Like, that there was no historical no history at all, which right. is interesting since we we also talked about the book symbolism in the fourth sure. gospel about right. that, that it does have a lot of symbolism, but, but he took it as yeah. it's pure symbolism, yeah. like none of these things really happen. Yeah, for John, I, the way I, I, I've said it, and I think I've borrowed this from somebody else, I can't remember at the moment, but... Borrow, <laughs> quotation, quotation. This is my citation here. Yeah. But, you know, that for John, it is theological, but that it happened was very important. And, you know, he at some of those crucial points, uh, for example, one of them's in John chapter 19, when Jesus is crucified and his side, he, he's already dead. They, they Soldiers come to break the legs of the people who are crucified with Jesus. We'll talk about this a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the soldiers thrusts his spear into Jesus' side, and it says blood and water flowed out, 
And right there, the author of the gospel says, I was there and I saw this, you know, mm-hmm. basically, the, you know, I, I can testify that this is true. So e- even though there may be theological significance to the blood and the water, you know, some of the things that Jesus had said earlier about him being um, a living water flowing from within him and this kind of thing, that e- even though there's a significance to it, you know, I think John is also saying, I was there, I saw it. this happened. You know, that's that was important for him as well, I think. So... So the interesting thing is that, again, for a long time, you know, like I said, and I'm going to give some examples, even the big big changes back around the 1950s, and I'll tell you what significant thing happened in the 1950s. But before that, a lot of the commentators would bring up some of these details that John mentions. I'll mention two in particular, uh, some of these details that John mentioned, and they'll say, well, this was he made this up. You know, this is just, there's no... Total fabrication. Right. There's no historical reason to believe this. But then we have subsequently found archaeological discoveries that have confirmed the way that John told the story. So that's what I think is so fascinating about this is, is again, John has been kind of discredited in the past, mm-hmm. but these things have have basically shown that that uh, there's historical value to it. And so I, that's what I wanted to focus on. That's why I thought, you know, just focusing on John would be good. Yeah, that'd be great. So let me mention the first first thing. I mentioned 1950s. Uh, discovery the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, technically, they were discovered in '47 by a shepherd, kind of an accidental discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, just recently, we've been hearing about another this, find, another find, the first in 50 years, basically, uh, of a new cave that they've discovered. What was it? It's called the Cave of Cave of Horrors, I think. Yes, yeah. where there was a lot. Of- there's some skeletons there. A lot, a lot of skeletons from the article I read. Right, yeah. but then you, ha- you know, they had to rappel into it as well to get to these. And they, but they found some some additional some parts parts of the Old Testament that were in Greek, which is interesting because most of the most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are are Hebrew, which mm-hmm. is you know the the significant thing there. But this is a part of um, the prophet Nahum is a part of what they found. Interesting thing. Of course, we have a Greek translation of the. Old Testament that was done in Alexandria, Egypt, that's called the um, Septuagint. Mm-hmm. And so we have that, but this seems to be a different tradition from that, or at least a variation of it. So it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what they what they end up with. But, but anyway, back in the 1950s, the, here, here's the way that this affected the Gospel of John. Now, you'll know in the Gospel of John, there's lots of contrasts. We call it dualism, right? Between light and darkness, for example, right. or uh, you know, there's a lots of these kind of images that you have light and dark, or you know, these these kind of very dualistic things. And in the past, commentators have thought, and I'm talking about before 1950. Well, this must be Greek in background then, because dualism. When they would think about dualism, they would think about this kind of Platonic dualistic idea where there's you know this light and dark, or you know, good and evil, and all these kind of things. And so they kind of put was well, said, well, John's drawing on this Greek background, you know, Greek philosophical background. Hellenistic. Yeah, Hellenistic. But with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the early scrolls that was found was called the Wars of the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. And and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a place called Qumran. Mm-hmm. I think you've been there, right? I have been I have there. I've seen, I've seen the caves. And it was it was not just the caves, but there was a community that lived there. There's right. buildings, there's places that they would ceremonially bathe. And, and so this was a community of Jewish people who lived out in the, the wilderness and they clearly were dualistic as well. So here's the big change it made in the Gospel of John is it be, made us begin to see that there's actually a Jewish background to the Gospel of John. And now we read it and we think, well, yeah, I, I mean, there's no way to see it otherwise. But that happened in 1940. There was a uh, one of the first people to note this was a guy by the name of J.A.T. Robinson, and he he wrote an article 
talking about. He, he says, really, the background of the Gospel of John is probably closer to the events narrated than we've ever thought. So this idea of it being a Greek kind of idea, well, this is a later thought, again, kind of a non-historical thing. This is John taking Greek ideas and putting it into the story of Jesus. And and, and so the Dead Sea Scrolls really changed that. Now, again, that was back in 1950, mm-hmm. but I would say still up at least until the turn of the turn of the century, turn of the millennium, we've been working out exactly how the Gospel of John is Jewish. Like, what what does that mean? What and, and so it, it's really exciting and an exciting part of the whole study. Let me give you one other example then of a different archaeological find. This one's much more recent. This one's within the last twenty years or so. I think it was in the first decade of the of of the century is when this discovery was made in a place called Kirbet Kana. Now, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> it's easy for you to say, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that place. That's great. Now, you remember John, John, the first couple of signs, it, he calls them signs, the miracles of Jesus, but he, he uses the word, the, the Greek word semi, our sign for him. First couple of signs, he, he numbers. He said, this is the first sign. You, you right. remember what he says the first sign that Jesus performed was? Turning water into wine. And, and that happened and at Cana. At Cana, at the wedding feast of Cana. Well, Kirbet Cana is one of the potential sites for the turning water into wine, for the biblical Cana, okay? And it's not too far from Nazareth, where, where Jesus would have, you know, kind of his hometown. It's just a few miles from there, a village that would have been outside of that. And uh, go ahead and read. This is in John chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where this event takes place. The first half of John chapter 2 is the is the turning water into wine. Go ahead and read the first couple of verses there for us. It just kind of sets the scene for that. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus's mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus's mother told him, they don't have any wine. Okay, now this is interesting. One of the things, the custom, this is one of those customs that we've talked about, that the custom would have been for there to be a, a long wedding feast. This was week-long affair, basically. And and what would take place is that the groom was responsible for making sure that everybody had enough. And it was kind of a way that they were showing that they were going to be able to take care of the bride. Right? Okay. So this was... this. Was I knew a, it was a party, but I didn't know it was like this well, sign that they could take care of the right. bride. Right. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like this idea, I'm, I have enough. And so, so running out of wine was a big deal. Okay, this isn't just like, oh, gee. You it's know. not like a slight offense, like, right. oh, all right, I'll drink right. some soda. Or, you know, we go down to 7-Eleven or something, but you know, get a, what, what are those called there? The- Seven, a box of wine at 7-Eleven? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. I was talking about- Slurpee? What, Slurpee, that's where oh. I was going. No, it's not like you go down to 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee. But, uh, okay. <laughs> anyway. But this this had to do with the, this idea that the groom's not able to provide then. And so this would have brought shame on the family. Now, the fact that Jesus' mother involves herself has indicated to some that this may be a part of Jesus' family, maybe maybe a brother of Jesus, for example. Now, you know, depending upon your belief about that, you know, you may have different ideas, but some think that this may be a brother of Jesus that was, it was at his wedding, and this is why he was invited. That's why his mother's concerned with this idea of running out of wine and goes and gets Jesus and tells him this. So then you might remember down in verse 6 then. Read just verse 6. Now, six stone jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Okay, so six. And now here, here's the here's a couple of key words here that, that we don't. It's one of those things, like I always say, we read over, we don't notice it. What are the jars made out of? Stone. Okay. And, and here's the big deal is stone is not a, it's not a normal kind of material that you would use to make jars. Okay, mm-hmm. much easier to use 
clay, clay, right, and and bake it, and that. So so imagine the effort that would go into carving out a stone water jar, and then it says that the, the, these jars were specifically used for the ceremonial washing that the, the Jewish people did, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that they were made out of stone was because of the ceremonial washing. According to the rabbis, and this is the rabbinic literature, early rabbinic literature that we think would have been before the time of the gospel, so between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the rabbinic literature, the teaching of the time, basically said that what you needed to use to wash yourself was moving water. And there's an interesting phrase that's used for this. The phrase is actually living water. The li- is, living water yeah. needed to be used for ceremonial cleansing. So you're talking about a, a spring or... Stream of some sort. Right. Not a well, right? Not, not a cistern. You know, the difference between a well and a cistern. Wells, you know, you're going down to groundwater. Cistern is collecting, collecting. rainwater, okay? Mm-hmm. But, but you needed to have moving water. Now, you could collect it from a place where there was moving water, like a spring, for example. But then, according to the rabbis, it needed to be stored in stone. And uh, if it was clay or something else, that it wouldn't... Keep its properties. It, 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 and the term in the Old Testament is obviously clean and unclean. And and they don't they don't mean that in the same way we would use the word clean right. and unclean, but right, that it's it's suitable for this purpose, that it's clean water, okay? So that, that it needs to be stored in stone. So again, now here's the issue. For a long time, historians said, well, I don't think the Galilean Jews were that interested in these cleanliness matters. Maybe in Judea you had this kind of stuff, but up in, up in Galilee you didn't. But around 2004 or so, in this place in Kirbet Kana, they discovered fragments of stone water jars. And, and mm. again, there's no other reason you would do stone jars, right? You would use you would use clay, you use some other because it was so labor intensive just to have these things. The only reason you would do it is if you're using for a special purpose like this. It kind of reminds me of what Paul said about you know some articles are for special purpose, right? Right. So if you're going to use it for ceremonial cleansing, so there's these six water jars. Again, for a long time, historians said, well, this is a detail about what Jesus thinks about the cleanliness system of the Jews. It's it's a theological issue, is what commentators said for years, until we discovered, no, there are actually stone water jars up there. <laughs> now, subsequently, we've discovered that there are these all over Galilee. There's two different sites that are possible for uh, the biblical Cana, and in both of those places, fragments of these jars have been found. And beyond that, in Galilee, we've now found where there was an industry where these things were made. So, wow. so it was like, it wasn't just a one-off. No, it, no. This was like a legitimate, this is happening in Cana. So again, it's when you know commentators are saying, oh, the Galilean Jews weren't interested in this, so this can't be historical detail. Well, now we've shown, well, in fact, there was an entire industry that was dedicated to providing these stone jars, and, and there'd be no other reason to have stone jars other than this idea of ceremonial cleansing. So it ends up this historical detail that John gives us isn't theological. I mean, it may have theological significance, right? but it is historical. There's no reason for us not to think when he's talking about stone water jars, he means stone water jars. So totally against the whole idea that this is just a, it's just a spiritual thing. Sure, right. Let me talk about another couple of things then. This is this is the third thing I want to mention is these both are in Jerusalem. These next two things I'm going to mention are both in Jerusalem. They're both pools. Uh, it's interesting the number of pools that we have mentioned in the Gospel of John, and it actually, believe it or not, I've I've written a a little article on this idea about cleansing in John. Cleansing is an important issue in John. In chapter two, we have this idea of the the ceremonial cleansing, and, and then there's other places in 
the Gospel of John where it talks about this. You might remember, I think it's chapter... Goodness, I can't remember it. I should have looked this up. If you don't remember, I'm not remembering. <laughs> but you, you might remember there were some of John the Baptist disciples that came to and, Jesus and, and 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 were criticizing the way that they did cleansing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so Jesus talks about that there. Even in the upper room, John chapter 13, you might remember Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter, and Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless, unless I clean you, you have no part in me. And then Peter says, well, then give me a bath, basically, and wash my head, my hands, and you know, not <laughs> yeah. just my feet. And, and Jesus says, if you've already bathed, you only need your feet washed, basically. That's what it comes right. down to. Now, there's a lot going on in that passage. I don't have time to talk about it today. We'll talk about that another... Some of these, we'll talk about that another <laughs> That's day. another topic. Okay, we've got to right. know this now. Okay. <laughs> but... That whole idea about cleansing, you might remember when they're in the upper room, that's the Feast of Passover. Right. So when pilgrims would come into Jerusalem, and they would do this several times a year for these Jewish festivals, for these Jewish feasts, there were thousands of people streaming from all over Jewish people coming to Jerusalem in order to to celebrate these feasts. Tabernacles in the fall, Passover in the spring, uh, you know, these major feast days is, is when they would come. And one of the things that they had to do is when they entered into the city, they had to be ceremonially cleansed. And essentially, they would immerse themselves. Now, the way – so think about that. Thousands of people. There's a weight. All, all, well, all <laughs> over all over uh, Israel and, 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 and in Palestine, all over – Qumran's an example. There are these stone-carved pools that are called mikvah. Um, mikvah, mikvah? Is, mikvah is the is the word for the singular. It means a bath is one of the ways it's translated, or mikvahot is the is the plural. So you see these these mikvahot all over all over ancient Israel in in archaeology. Qumran had several, and we know from some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that this was something that they practiced on a regular basis. They practiced these ceremonial cleansings. Again, we're in that idea of Jewish mm-hmm. ceremonial cleansing, but in Jerusalem there are a couple of these pools that we have now discovered were these huge mikvot that were used so thousands of pilgrims could could essentially bathe themselves. Sometimes a, a translation of mikvah is stepped pool. So it's these ideas that these stone steps go down and allow you to basically walk down into the water, kind of imagine a big swimming pool, okay. but with these steps at the edge, you could walk down into the water, and, and you could then kind of duck down and immerse yourself completely and then you would you would come out, and that's basically what Jesus is talking about in John 13. When he says to Peter, you've come up to the festival. You've already cleansed yourself. You might remember later the next day when Jesus is being um, tried, according to John, the Jewish leaders would not go into Pilate's house because they had already been cleansed for the festival. Yes. If they went into a, a Gentile's house, they would have been unclean, according to their customs. So these pools. So let me talk about a couple of them. There's one. That we see in John chapter 5. Read the first couple of verses of John 5, if you would. Okay, let me get there. All right, here we go. John chapter 5, just 1 and 2. Okay. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Okay. So Bethesda, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use several names for this. Some texts have Bethsaida, which is probably a misunderstanding because it's, that, that's the hometown of some of Jesus' disciples. Bethesda is what we usually use for this pool, but it, it probably is Bethzatha. 
is probably the word. Again, it doesn't doesn't make too much difference. But anyway, yeah. that's that's the pool we're talking about there. And do, but you notice the details that I that I mentioned. What do you, what do you notice now that after what we've already talked about? What do you what do you see there? Uh, well, by the Jewish festival. Okay, so so he's going up for a Jewish festival. Yep. And there's this pool, so that's where you'd go, right? Yep, yep. and it's right by the gate. It's right by the gate, and and the Sheep's Gate is where, what do you think you'd take through the Sheep's Gate? I'm going to guess, I'm going to go to a limb here and maybe say a sheep. Why would you need sheep in Jerusalem? For the sacrifice. Okay, so this is right by the temple. We're in the shadow of the temples where this is. This is where this takes place. This is the the gate that you would bring in the sheep that you'd use for sacrificial system, you know, for mm-hmm. the sacrifices there would be brought in through this gate. And here's this pool. Now, this pool was actually discovered. You're, you guys are going to say this is not a recent discovery. It was discovered originally in 1888. But now here's here's the really interesting thing. Even though it was discovered, it was this single pool in 88. There's another detail, ar- architectural detail that John gives us there. What does he say? Five colonnades. Five colonnades, or you'll sometimes see the word porticos. So these, uh, it's a covered colonnades, a covered porch, like a long covered mm-hmm. porch, if you can imagine. Uh, that's what a colonnade is. You could walk under it, especially in Jerusalem. There's winter rains, and, and so you know you needed a kind of a, a shelter basically for those times of the year. And a long time, and, and you can look at commentators. They they will say that this five colonnades stands for it's a it, it's a symbolic detail, theological, and John is making some point. Probably, and and you're not going to believe me when I tell you this, but there are commentaries that say this has to do with the five books of Moses. Yes, I don't believe you. <laughs> well, I'll have to show you later then. So, <laughs> so they're stretched. So they're saying this isn't historical detail at all. Now, again, this was discovered in 88. A hundred years later, there were additional digs that were done. So this is back, this is, in, let's say, 1980s, okay. late, late 1980s, early 1990s. And what they've discovered is actually there are two pools here. There's a north pool and a south pool. Interesting thing. <clears throat> this has to do with the things I've already told you about. And see, this all kind of comes together here. What they would do is they would have a north pool and they would have a south pool. The north pool was higher. And what they would do is from time to time, they would open a gate and allow water to run. These are both stone-lined pools. They would allow water to run from the top pool into the bottom pool because that's living water. Interesting. That could be used for ceremonial cleansing. We found in the south pool, it's a stepped pool. And in fact, that detail's there. Do you remember when Jesus, this man's been laying there, what, 38 years? Is that what the scripture said? Do you still have the Bible there in front uh, of you? Let me pull back up here. I think he's, he'd been there, for, uh, you know, paralytic for 38 years. And you remember he says, uh, Jesus says to him, you know, do you want to be well? Yes, and, and he's waiting for the waters to be stirred. And, and, and exactly, which is what, what happened when this when this gate would be open and the waters would come from the upper pool, the lower pool. But then what does the man say to Jesus? He says, do you want to be well? And the man responds. Oh, gosh. I'm pulling it up. <laughs> Brian. We can cut this out. Uh, we can cut this uh, out. No, no, post, no. no. Do you want to be healed? Uh, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Okay, so there's this idea of the steps into the pool. Mm-hmm. And and so, again, what we understand this to be is a mikvah now. We understand that now. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you think about having two pools then, imagine a north pool that's a little bit higher and a, and a southern pool. You've got on each side a colonnade, and then you have a colonnade we have discovered that goes right down the middle. Mm-hmm. So if you count that, that's five colonnades. So wait, you've got two on each, or wait, one on each side? 
Well, no, there's, there's, so there's, you got a North Pool and a South Pool. So if you think about kind of a rectangle, imagine a rectangle. So uh-huh. how many porticos would that be? That would be four, yeah, one okay. on each side. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm just- <laughs> I'm just trying to picture this. I mean, I, I know you never had math in college. Oh, my. I, sorry. We're going to have words later. Okay. <laughs> so imagine the North Pool and South Pool. There's, yes. there's, a, there's a portico on each side, uh-huh. and then there's one down the middle. So that's the fifth portico. Gotcha. So, so we have archaeologically discovered there were, five, there were five colonnades. There were five porticos around this pool. One right. on each side, and then one that divided the North and the South Pool. And so, again, what people thought were at some point a theological or a, a historical detail is in is. fact that you know. So, this next one is more. This one's kind of interesting. If you visited, um, if you've ever visited Jerusalem, we've talked about Hezekiah's Tunnel before, and you said you went down into Hezekiah's Tunnel, but you didn't. Yes, go we went. We didn't it. go through it. We didn't have the waters very cold. We didn't right. have the waiters and stuff. Yeah. And I'm also six foot. Or <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's a short. It's a tight. So Hezekiah is, of course, this Old Testament king, and one of the things that he did is he he made there was a spring of Gihon. It's called, and he he basically put a, he he dug a tunnel or had had a tunnel dug. He didn't do it himself. He was a king. You know, he could order he people to do, do it. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. But but this is really fascinating. In fact, it's it's interesting that they dug this underneath. We can see for, they went from two directions and they met in the middle, and you can see where they met. They were very close. Pretty amazing they could do this in the ancient world, but they, he dug this so that you could, without leaving the walls of Jerusalem, you could have a supply of water. And what that basically did is it helped make uh, Jerusalem uh, siege proof. Yeah, it's stronger defense that you don't have to go outside the city walls for water. So it's not like an army can cut off your water supply and and basically make you thirsty enough that you have to come out. Yeah. So this is why he did it. So you can go through Hezekiah's tunnel and you come out to this small. Pool, and for a long time, people said, "Oh, that's the Pool of Siloam," because that's about the general that's about the general area that it's supposed to be. Now, you remember the Pool of Siloam in Jesus' Gospel? It's mm-hmm. in John chapter nine. Mm-hmm. You might remember then. There's a man who's born blind. Yep. And the disciples are like, "Well, did he sin, or did his mother sin, or parents sin?" You know. And so Jesus said, "It's so the glory of God could be revealed." And he heals him, but he does it in an interesting way. Spits into some dirt, dirt, and makes mud. Puts it on his eyes, and then and then what does he do? Tells him to go wash at the pool of Siloam, Siloam which then John gives the detail that means sent. He said he sends him yes to this pool called sent. Now he calls him. He says you need to wash there, right, and wash the mud off. I think there's something going on here with the reason that Jesus does this because this whole thing's about uh, talk about dualism. Before this is about seeing and being blind. Is what this yes. this passage is about. Very end of the passage, you might remember that you know Jesus says, "I came so that the seeing would be blind, and those who are blind would see." And the the Jewish leaders are like, "Are you saying we're blind?" And he's like, "Well, you said it." <laughs> I I didn't say those words, but I mean, it's, it's not the exactly. shoe fits. Yeah, the sandal fits. So. So anyway, he sends him, and and here's the whole point: is he, he doesn't see Jesus because he's he, he's not healed until he goes and, and washes. Mm-hmm. But now here's the interesting thing. That pool was there uh, at the end of the Hezekiah's tunnel, the, you know, the spring of Gihon. We thought this was the pool of Siloam that he was sent to. This happened in 2004. There was a sewage leak. And, and this is the interesting thing about a lot of these archaeological discoveries. We talked before about how there's all kinds of archaeology all over Israel, but particularly in Jerusalem. Right. But there was a sewage leak. And so in repairing that that sewer leak, they 
dug down and they discovered this pool 2004. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, this is way below ground at this point. Yes. Because the, the Jerusalem has yeah. been built on top of what was there. Yes. And so if you look at that pool, it's another mikvah. It's another stepped pool that Jews would have used for ceremonial cleansing. Okay. Again, you need several of these people are coming in from different directions. Jerusalem, there are thousands of people who needed to be washed the same day, basically. And so that's where Jesus sends this guy. And so the the detail here, they had a detail. We thought we knew where the Pool of Siloam is, but now we're pretty sure this is the actual Pool of Siloam. And where Jesus sends him and says, says to him, wash, is a place that the Jewish people would have gone to, to cleanse themselves ceremonially. Gives us a little bit of a different perspective, I think, on what Jesus thought about the 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 ceremonial cleansing. You know, some people said, well, Jesus completely rejected it. I don't know that that's what's going on here. I think what instead is he's sending him to this place, a traditional site of cleansing, and, and that's where the guy goes and and he washes himself and is clean and is able to see. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think so. It's uh, yeah, John nine six and seven. You see a couple of those verses there. I don't. Did you have that or have you? Uh, yeah, I've actually got him here. Yeah. It, so yeah. uh, John nine six and seven. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seen. Okay, so that's what's going on there. So here's the last one I think I'm going to mention, and this is this is a discovery that people talked about a lot, and there's various parts to this for us understanding the Gospel of John. You've been reading Josephus lately. I, I have, yes. <laughs> right. When you read the literature of the ancient world, Jesus was not the only person crucified. There was a lot of people crucified. Lots of people were crucified. This was the Romans' way not only of punishing and 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 killing, essentially executing criminals, but it was a public display. Sending a message. Sending a message. We are in control. You know, the cross was a symbol of kind of their oppression of these peoples. And so that was that was their way of kind of making sure people understood who was in charge. And, and so, yeah, there were times that hundreds or thousands of people were crucified in the same day. And even if you think about the day that Jesus was crucified, there were two other people crucified that very day. So John gives us a couple of details that no one else does. Uh, one of them is, you might remember in John chapter 20, after Jesus has risen from the dead, Thomas says this. He says, I, I will never believe unless you show me the nail prints in his hand. You know, later Jesus says to him here, touch, yeah, touch, touch the nail prints in my hand and my feet. And, and one of the ways, crucifixion wasn't always done with nails is the interesting thing. And, and for a long time, people thought, well, maybe it was not very often done with nails. The reason is nails are more expensive than, let's say, using rope or some other way to, to hang someone, uh, hang someone from a cross. Some people question, still today, some people question that, that historical detail. We, for all the people who were crucified, we have very few examples of, of people crucified from the ancient world. You know, and for a long time, we had no examples of archaeological evidence of people being crucified. Okay. So this was seen, the nails, well, maybe that's not a, maybe that's a theological thing, not a, not a historical thing. Here's the other issue, and there have been some, uh, John Crossan is one of the people who, who said this, that crucifixion victims were not normally buried. Mm. And so that whole idea of his, him being taken down from the cross and buried is another part. In John, there's this really interesting detail mentioned where where they sent, because of the ceremonial cleansing of the Jews, again, interestingly enough, since we're on that, the, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to go and have the bodies taken down from the cross 
before it becomes uh, the the feast, Sabbath, yeah. yeah, the Sabbath, so that the land is not unclean. That's the Old Testament passage, right? So what happens is they go and and it it says that they break the legs of the people who are on each side of Jesus, and this is an act called Kurafragium, which we have a few literary ideas about in the in the ancient world. Kurafragium means basically a fracturing of the curus, which is the the thigh bone. So they would take a, break it with probably a hammer of some sort, a mallet and or sticks, a club, yeah, and uh, it sped up the death, probably both through asphyxiation, so people think, but also through the loss of blood. Mm-hmm. Big, your biggest bone in your body is your thigh bone, and so you lose in the marrow, you lose a lot of blood if that's broken. And so the the point that John makes, and this is another these places, he said, I saw this myself, right. Mm-hmm. The point he makes is that they came to Jesus and his bones were not broken. He said this was to fulfill scripture. And he, he quotes from this idea that basically the Passover lamb's bones should not be broken. He quotes from the right. book of Exodus. And so again, another thing, oh, this has got to be theological. This isn't a significant point. And then, and then the flow of blood and water, the thrust of the spear to side I mentioned earlier in the flow of blood and water. Well, in 1968, it was in the immediate aftermath of the... Um, the the war that took place in in the late '60s in yep. in Jerusalem that was affected by missiles and, and those kind of things there they were doing some rebuilding in 1968 there's an area of uh, Jerusalem called Givat Hamivtar and what they did is they found a whole connected series of caves that were used for burials then that they they never knew this previously in 1968 they discovered this and in one of those places they found an ossuary I don't think we've talked about ossuaries yet but basically mm-hmm. ossuary is a bone box that's what it means. Um, and the, the way burial would take place in, in the first century is people would be laid on a stone when they were first in, in the middle like a of stone the tomb. Slab. Yeah, a stone slab in the middle of the tomb. They would, bodies would be wrapped, anointed with spices. And then a year later, they would come back and they would basically gather up the bones that were remaining and they would put those in this box. And those would be set a lot of times into an alcove in the wall. Gotcha. Uh, so, so, you know, that's how many, a whole family could be fit in. So, so this ossuary was found. The interesting thing about this ossuary, the, the, there was a carving on the outside. This isn't unusual um, that, that they would have the name of the individual who was inside carved on the outside, like we'd have a tombstone or whatever. And his name was Yehochanan. And uh, his ankle bone was found still having a nail through it. Now, here's the interesting thing is, okay, so here's a nail mm-hmm. that was used in his ankle for crucifixion, probably, that's what we think. And uh, he was also buried. So here's an example of another crucifixion uh, victim. We think he was crucified right around 70 AD. You might remember the Jewish rebellion was taking place then, and the Romans were crucifying people. We think it took place in connection with that. And he he was crucified. The only reason that we know that is because the tip of the nail seems to have bent Maybe hit a knot in the wood that as, as it was being driven through his, um, his it, technically it's his heel bone. And again, it gave us kind of a different insight into the different ways that crucifixion were done. We think probably his legs, instead of like you classically see Jesus kind of feet crossed over, mm-hmm. it seems like his legs were one on each side of the cross for Yohohanan's case. And it was driven through his heel bone into the into the wood, but it the nail tip curved. And so what we think is these nails, they were used for different reasons, but often they were reused because of the expense of them. Mm-hmm. And so 
when they tried to pull this one out, they couldn't because basically the tip of the nail had bent. And so they, I'm going to pass out. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. No. Sorry. Just like the nail through the heel bone well, and, I, and, and, I, and the nut. I'm I probably, like, I ah. probably, I probably shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> no, and it's I, good I, information. I'm just like kind of going. <laughs> I'm imagining like I hit my heel on my cabinet in my right. house, and I'm like, I'm about to lose the, my mind. I mean, we probably, I probably shouldn't just be so matter of the fact. I mean, crucifixion was a, a horrible means of death. It was, it was meant. It to was be, meant to be. Horrible. It was meant to be. You know, the word excruciating has the word cross in the middle of it, right? It was meant to be a, 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 a painful, horrible way to die. And like we said, public, you know, that they did this usually on roads, you know, so this was outside the walls of Jerusalem, but it would have been on a on a place where people could have gone by and seen. In fact, John makes that detail that the Jewish people going by saw that he had put uh, King of the Jews, Pilate had put the placard said King of the Jews and asked him to change it. He claimed to be King of the Jews. And Pilate says, you know, obviously what I've written, I've written. So, so all that detail all fits as well. Now, so, so basically... Because we found this soon, we know that nails were used. Nails were used, and that they did allow. There was some there burials, were some, at least you know, at least some burials that took place of crucifixion victims. Uh, you know, John Dominic Cross, and again, famously said, "Well, I think that what happened to Jesus' body, what happened to most crucifixion bodies, is that dogs came and ate it, or you know, it was right. it was basically just thrown into a heap." But here's at least an example of someone else that we know whose their family was allowed to take them down off the cross and and bury them, like what we see happening with Jesus with you know the 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 detail there. Now here's the interesting that was the only crucifixion victim we had found until 2006, 2007. And there's another crucifixion victim. This is in in a place in Italy called Gavello. Only other one. Now here's the interesting here's why this is makes me feel really good, is because I wrote about this. <laughs> I wrote about this, and I made the point we really should probably pay more attention to this particular bone because it, we only found this one because the nail was still in it. Right. What if there are other bones that we need to look to see the way they're fractured or maybe they have holes in it? So this Gavello skeleton, another burial. Now, this the difference is this was not an ossuary burial. This was a full burial in dirt, okay, in, in this portion of Italy, this place in Italy. They were putting through a railway, and they they dug up this this burial, and here was another victim. But what they noticed was that there was a hole in this bone of his ankle. Um, it was a male skeleton that is consistent with a nail being driven through it, and then and then taking out. So here's what I'd say: is we have now two <laughs> uh, crucifixion victims, archaeological evidence of crucifixion, and a hundred percent of them were buried. <laughs> right? Yes, and a hundred percent of them you know, had the use of nails in, in their crucifixion. Now, we have to be careful because, you know, obviously the use of nails is why we can tell this is a crucifixion. Because it went through a bone. Right, right. But this is a very recent, actually, I just wrote another article about this. This is just now starting to be thought about in connection with uh, crucifixion of Jesus. But 2006, 2007 was that discovery. So I guess here's my overall point. And again, archaeology isn't always about, as I've said before, archaeology mainly is about talking about the the cultures and the customs and those kind of things. It's not it's not always these, oh, I found the, you know, Ark of the Covenant or I found the, <laughs> you know, the the burial shroud of Jesus, that kind of thing. The Holy Grail, you know. Mm-hmm. Often it it's more about these culture kind of things. But there are times where people have criticized the Gospel of John in particular as being ahistorical, not not historical. And and instead what we've seen is archaeology bears out this. So does that leave you with any questions or any 
Well, yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I never had thought that most people or there were those in academia that considered that the Gospel of John was not the Gospel of John, right? (laughs) Or or that it was it it wasn't historical like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so, you know, I don't know if I have any questions. I mean, I think it's just really interesting to think and to see the correlation between the two of them. You know, it's not like we found something that this is specifically from this time, but kind right. of going, we're seeing again, as you said, it's, and we've talked about worldview a couple, sure. Uh, but you're, you're starting to see the cultures and the practices and yeah. that, how that helps inform and us understand what's happening in that. Right. You mentioned uh, John Dominic Crossan, yeah. but he, he doesn't believe much right. of what, you know, Jesus says or does right. and through some of this stuff. And so, but to see that, as we're progressing in time, you know, some of these things that we thought were not historical that sure. we're finding in the earth. And, you know, and it's always interesting for me to think, you know, you talked about the the pool of uh, Siloam, you know, I think it's always like, well, how come we didn't know this? And we just found this sure. in 2000, you know, 2008 or whatever, but right. like how, how much is buried under yeah. the ground in Jerusalem? Yeah. There's that. And, you know, as I said before, Jerusalem is such, such a touchy place to dig because of there, there's nothing I didn't mention. I could have could have mentioned this. There, it talks about the stone pavement. It, John t- tells us that Jesus was brought out when in, in Pilate's house and the stone pavement, and you know that's underneath again some very special areas of Jerusalem. And so digging there has been difficult. Now they have found what seems to be that stone pavement, that very place where Jesus was. And you know there, there's different debates about that and so forth. But yeah, Jerusalem particularly is a difficult place to, because people still live there, and and people from different religions consider those places to be sacred and holy, and not necessarily places they want someone coming in and digging and and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it makes it difficult. Yeah, and I it helps me as I'm thinking about reading the Gospel of John, or sure. any of the Gospels, because I think, again, we've, we've talked about this several times, the veil of time and what's sure. happening, but these are real places, and these are real right. things. Not that I ever questioned it before. Right, right. But to uh, there's tangibleness to it yeah. as we read this. This is real, right. and that you know John is writing in a certain way, and there is symbolism in the Gospel sure. of John. But that these are real places with real meanings, and that would have had very special and real meaning to the to the original yeah. readers of the Gospel, and, and potentially real events. You know, I think these are these are you know what John is writing are things that he saw, things that he says this happened, and I was there and I saw it. So, yeah, very good. Well, Brian, thanks so much for sharing. Not a problem. Good to be back in the bistro with you, Ryan. Yes. We'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds good. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Next week, Brian and I are talking about Bible study preparation. We both share the tools and processes we go through for our personal discipleship, as well as when we are teaching, Brian in the pulpit and myself in a small group setting, to make sure we're getting to the biblical author's true intent. We hope you'll join us for that. You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com, as well as sign up for our email newsletter to stay in touch, but also to get some exclusive content we are working on. You can find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Bible Bistro. And as always, you can subscribe to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next Tuesday.